Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Fabrice Valdefeim, a structured finance partner based in the Paris office of Alan Novary, and I've been advising financial institutions, blue chip corporates, asset managers for, for over 20 years now on, on structured finance and securitization matters. And I'm Marie Green, and I'm PSL Council supporting our global securitization practice, in particular focus on uh, regulatory matters and developments affecting our global practice. The subject of the podcast today is the application of the EU and UK restriction on the use of third country SPVs in securitization and the need to consider the various blacklist and grey lists that's been relatively recently introduced in, in the regulation. Maria, maybe to start with, I, I, I'd like to focus on, on a little bit of terminology and maybe you can, you can bring some lights on what we mean by SPV, SSP and, and which transaction parties are concerned by, by this uh, topic. Uh, yes, absolutely. We should flag at the beginning that while the legislation refers to the term SSPE, which means Securization Special Purpose Entity, in our podcast for ease of reference, we are going to be referring to perhaps a more familiar term to most of you uh, being SPV, Special Purpose Vehicle. And I would also want to flag straight away that the way SSPE term is defined in the legislation in both EU and UK securitization regulation is that that definition expressly carves out, excludes from that definition parties like originators and sponsors. So it's de defined to mean somebody other than originator or sponsor entity. And when we come to think about which transaction parties would care about this restriction on the use of third country SPVs, we are focusing on uh, the originators, sponsors, original lenders, and we will be referring to these parties as sell-side parties during the podcast. And it also matters for institutional investors as defined in both regimes. And we will be referring to these parties as buy-side as we go through the podcast. And institutional investors for these purposes are those in scope of the EU or UK securitization regulation. And there's a wrinkle there. And I think it's important to perhaps remind our listeners that when we're talking about EU, UK institutional investors as buy-side parties, third country subsidiaries that are prudentially consolidated under EU or UK capital requirements regulations. So you have a UK subsidiary prudentially consolidated with an EU bank regulated under EU capital requirements regulation, EU CRR. Those institutional investors will be in scope of both EU and UK securitization regulation. So an EU subsidiary of a UK bank or a UK subsidiary of an EU bank will be institutional investors under both EU and UK investor due diligence regimes. Maria, just carrying on on the EU and UK divergence, I, I think it will be of, of great interest to the listeners to, to hear precisely about where we stand on the post-Brexit divergence between EU and UK restrictions and how these two regimes apply across the two systems. Yeah, of course. And this is indeed a kind of very topical post-Brexit to kind of consider how the EU and UK re regimes interplay, given that the position we've ended up after the end of the Brexit transition period essentially gives us uh, plenty of food for thought when it comes to the points of divergence. But the starting point I would like to make is that turning to the EU regime, in April 2021, the EU securitization regulation was amended under the COVID recovery package. And in particular, amendments also included change 
changes made to Article 4, setting out restrictions on the use of third country SPVs. And amendments essentially introduced the need to consider whether or not the relevant third country is listed in EU blacklist for anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing purposes. And it also introduced a restriction on the use of third countries that are on the EU blacklist for tax purposes, non-cooperative jurisdictions for tax purposes. And in addition, it's not a restriction, but a requirement was introduced that if third country SPVs are being set up after 9th of April 2021 in jurisdictions mentioned in the EU Annex 2 tax list, there was a new requirement introduced for relevant EU investor to notify its tax authority in its EU member state. So essentially, the April 2021 changes to the EU regime resulted in relevant parties in scope of the EU security regulation having to consider EU anti-money laundering blacklist, EU blacklists set up for tax purposes and EU so-called grey list Annex 2 set up for tax purposes as well. So just to quickly note about Annex 2 uh, tax list, it is, as I mentioned, is all about jurisdictions that you're not restricted to use for setting up SPVs. Annex 2 list is about third country jurisdictions that's committed to implement changes on good tax governance, but they have not yet implemented such changes. So therefore, the way the restriction works for Annex 2 tax list countries is the need to notify the relevant EU tax authority in the member state where the EU institutional investor is tax resident. We are aware of differences of opinions among some law firms as to whether we need to be concerned about all jurisdictions listed in Annex 2 or only those that are mentioned in the specific subsection, subsection 2.1. So the ANO's view is that it's prudent approach to consider that all jurisdictions mentioned in Annex 2 in its entirety are relevant to consider. And we'll touch on this in a little bit more detail as we go through specific analysis considering specific countries. And just to elaborate on a little bit more, the idea behind this tax authority notification requirement for Annex 2 tax jurisdictions is that following such notification by investor, the information provided to the tax authority can be used by the tax authority to assess whether that the EU investor derives a tax benefit. And by the way, the EU regime does not prescribe in what form and what detail must be provided in such notification. So there are some question marks exactly uh, kind of how this requirement needs to be met. But we are aware that various of our clients have had to deal with this in practice already. So there may be in some jurisdictions some guidance available from their tax authorities in that relevant member states, whilst other tax authorities may find themselves being caught by surprise when EU investor attempts to make this notification. So when considering Annex 2 tax list, another important point to note is that this requirement will apply to all SPVs established after 9th of April 2021. So it's important to remember that the trigger is not when the EU Annex 2 list is uh, updated and the updates come into effect. The trigger really is the date, relevant date of establishment for the SPV in question being after 9th of April. So therefore, it's kind of potentially has got a bit of a retrospective effect. If Annex 2 tax list updated with new jurisdictions, you need to go look back at uh, SPVs set up after 9th of April 2021. 
So the case situation regulation regime is different. And the reason being is that the changes I've just described to do with the EU regime all took effect in April 2021. So they were finalized and came into effect after the end of the Brexit transitional period. Therefore, they never became part of the UK securitization regulation regime post-Brexit. So UK Article 4 requirements remain exactly the same as they were um, in place from the start of 2019. And for these purposes, we need to consider in the UK the blacklist set up by the Financial Action Task Force, FATF blacklist. And currently, it only includes Iran and North Korea. And we don't need to worry about the EU anti-money laundering blacklist or EU tax lists. So these changes are not tracked through in the UK regime. But we'll elaborate a little bit more as we go through this podcast uh, on some of the relevant considerations for UK anti-money laundering purposes. So this is kind of a bit of a color on the divergence between how restriction on the use of third country SPVs apply under EU and UK regime. And for Brice, as you may recall, at the end of 2020, early 2021, the first jurisdiction that brought this SPV restriction very much into focus for the markets was Australia and how EU changes that have been introduced essentially caught the market somewhat by surprise that the proposed restriction would essentially affect Australian securitizations. Do you want to comment a little bit more on how things were evolving and the thinking that we applied at the time? Yeah, thanks for raising this, Maria. It's fascinating because it's really how this entire saga started back in late 2020. So we need to do a little bit of history here. In the late 2020, the restriction on EU Annex 2 tax lists did cause some alarm and deep reaction in the market given what happened. So let me tell you a little bit what, what happened there. The original proposal from the European Commission did not include any SPV-related change, interestingly. So that was not the focus of the Commission. But it is the European Parliament that introduced an outright ban on the use of jurisdictions mentioned in Annex 2 tax lists. And as it happens, at the time, Australia was mentioned in the Annex 2 list for contingent circumstances that would be too long to, to explain on this discuss- during this discussion. But at the time, Australia was there. So obviously, that caused some concern. And again, the proposal at first was to ban Annex 2 tax list jurisdiction from the list of eligible jurisdictions in an outright way. And clearly, the reaction of the market was good because that would have created a sudden inability to continue investing in existing a new Australian securitization, which would have resulted in significant market disruption, really. That was the that was the anticipation. And that was brought to the attention of the EU lawmakers. And after long discussions, including to understand why this proposal had been tabled, despite the initial position of the Commission, and in the end, the drafting change, so at first Australia remained in the list, but the drafting change such that, as Maria mentioned earlier, the requirements for those jurisdictions became to notify the EU tax authorities that an investment was made in a, an Annex 2 jurisdiction after the 9th of April 2021. 
And later on, by the way, Australia had been sort of was removed from from the list in the end. So happy happy end for the Australian saga. But still, the the, the requirement to notify remained, as as we described before on on the discussion. Interestingly, uh, by the way, the notification to tax authorities, which is including in a non-tax regulation, obviously, because that's the securitization regulation that is at stake here, may sometimes come as a surprise to tax authorities. And we are aware of circumstances and certain tax authorities receiving the notification, not fully aware of the background and the reason why they were receiving this piece of information and not really knowing what to do with it, really. So the surprise here. That is the the saga, a part of history, but also probably a good explanation of where of why we are where we are at the moment. Maria, turning to you, the uh, I mentioned evolution of the list with the removal of of Australia at some point, and this list is regularly updated. And you can probably tell us more about this. Yeah, indeed. Actually, the reason why we're recording this podcast is because it's not really one of consideration that a partisan scope of situation regulation regime need to think about. Because indeed, as Fabrice said, this EU tax lists and EU anti-money laundering counter-terrorism financing list, as we mentioned earlier, they are regularly updated. They're updated in list, at least annually, and sometimes very often they're updated twice a year. Meaning that if third country jurisdictions are used on securitizations with EU next be it because there are EU parties involved on the sell or buy side, you kind of want to keep an eye on the evolution and updates to those EU black and grey lists that we are talking about today. And indeed, what happened in March is with effect from 3rd of March, both EU black and grey tax lists, both Annex 1 and Annex 2, have been updated. And Annex 1 tax list, we don't really care about as much because jurisdiction is mentioned there is not something we would ever really have to consider in practice. Not yet anyway, but the list of jurisdictions in Annex 2 can give rise to additional considerations because Annex 2 tax list jurisdictions do mention some jurisdictions that we do may want to consider for setting up SPVs. And the updates that took effect on 3rd of March now added to the Annex 2 list uh, jurisdictions like Bermuda and the British Virgin Islands, BVI. And as we said before, there is some difference of opinions between different law firms as to whether you need to consider Annex 2 tax list in its entirety uh, when you're thinking about tax authority notification or only certain sections, in particular some taking very narrow view, focusing on Section 2.1 only, which would then exclude Bermuda. But we, as I mentioned earlier, do think that a more prudent approach is to take the view that Annex 2 in its entirety should be considered when are looking at the requirement to notify the relevant EU tax authority. Sure. Maria, I think it's important to remind uh, that the annex to tax list is not a list for which restrictions apply. It's rather an additional compliance burden, right, as it requires a notification to the relevant EU tax authorities, as, as we said before. But we understand that for most clients, having to put in place such a notification would require 
internal approval or at least anticipate additional administrative burden. So not something that, that is necessarily enjoyed. And in practice, this also matters when it comes to considering alternative jurisdictions, including in situations where there is a history and a strong willingness to duplicate what, what's been done before. Again, this whole discussion, even for Annex 2 jurisdiction, requires a new thinking of, of where to establish uh, SPVs and the like. And that, by the way, brings us to probably our next topic, which is about when and why we care about updating the EU AML, AML and CTF blacklist. Uh, and then I'm, I'm, I'm referring to the blacklist. And, and maybe, Maria, you, you can tell us more about this. Yeah, absolutely. It's another saga to talk about. So, as you mentioned before, there is this other list, blacklist, we need to care about. It's the EU blacklist set up for anti-money laundering, counter-terrorism financing purposes, which is also updated during the year once or twice at least. And that list tends to be mirroring, at least, the third country jurisdictions that have been added to the monitoring list by the Financial Action Task Force, FATF. So back in February 2021, FATF monitoring list was updated with the addition of the Cayman Islands. And we were waiting for uh, almost a year for the EU to make a similar move on the Cayman Islands and adding it to the EU anti-money laundering kind of blacklist. So this move uh, kind of finally happened. So with the fact from 13th of March, the EU blacklist AML blacklist was updated with an addition of the Cayman Islands in response to Caymans being on the FATF monitoring list. So that kind of happened. And because Cayman is a fairly important jurisdiction for a number of structured finance transactions, that's very much also brought into focus kind of possible alternatives. Yeah, and Maria, given the number of internal conversations and also conversations and questions from clients on the Cayman Islands blacklisting. I'd like to focus a bit on, on the practical impact on, on that blacklisting of Cayman. Uh, can, can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Indeed, it was a very hotly uh, discussed topic since the FATF made the move on the Caymans back last February. We were all anticipating when it will happen, the blacklisting will happen in the EU. So there were indeed many, many questions raised due to the lack of clarity because the way the legislation is drafted is not really super crystal clear in terms of the impact and who is exactly is in scope. So this is because Article 4, where the restriction resides, does not expressly refer to specific transaction parties that need to worry about it. But I think when we're thinking about practical implications, in short, we need to break it down in terms of considerations that will arise for the sell-side parties and considerations that will arise for the buy-side parties. So turning to the sell-side parties first, because that's potentially a bit easier. So basically, it means that the moment the EU AML blacklist is updated with another third country jurisdiction, it means that EU originators, EU sponsors, EU original lenders involved in the securitization, they cannot set up new SPVs in those blacklisted jurisdictions. So which means that this type of sell-side parties in scope of the EU securitization regulation should not be setting up new Cayman SPVs once the blacklisting took effect. Once the blacklisting kind of is off, and we do expect that Caymans could potentially come off the EU blacklist at some point next year, because there is expectation that potentially following 
reassessment of the Caymans by the FATF in October 2022, it may be removed from the FATF monitoring list. And that could result in due course with the EU following up this and updating its own EU blacklist by taking Caymans off. But when exactly it will happen, we don't really know. But once it does happen, in principle, then EU sell-side party will be free to set up Cayman SPVs once more. But as long as the blacklisting is in place, no new SPVs should be set up. So that's the sell-side parties considerations. So for buy-side parties, and we're thinking here about investors and lenders in securitizations that meet EU institutional investor definition, the impact kind of differs, and it really depends on whether it concerns an existing securitization position in a securitization with a Cayman SPV. This position was created before the blacklisting took effect or whether it concerns a new investment, a new investment by an EU institutional investor to be made after the blacklisting took effect. So when we're thinking about existing deals where EU institutional investor is holding an existing securitization position created before the date of the blacklisting, when the blacklisting took effect, there is no mandatory obligation to divest of that position. And the main impact really is on the liquidity of this investment. That is the ability to sell that investment in the secondary markets because other EU investors will be restricted from buying it. So the liquidity is really the main impact when we're thinking about existing investments that EU investors are holding because they made that investment before the blacklisting took effect. But in the case of new securitization, positions created after the blacklisting takes effect. The EU investor will be restricted from making such new investment. And this is where on new securitizations that need to target EU investors, it will be necessary to consider alternative jurisdictions. Maria, let's pose here, just to comment on this issue of creation of new securitization, because it's important to note that such new securitization positions could be created either on new or on existing securitizations. For example, if you have an existing securitization, there could be new issuance of nodes, so there could be significant changes made to uh, some, some lending arrangements or further drawings or further commitments and there is some funding provided to the SPV. So it's important to keep that in mind. And we indeed had to consider setting up new SPVs in an alternative to Cayman jurisdictions or re-domiciling in some certain cases existing SPVs from, from Cayman to to other jurisdictions. In considering that maybe Maria which Alternative jurisdictions do we see as being widely considered at, at this point? Who emerges from, from the list of alternatives? Yeah, indeed. And the clear winner uh, appears to be Jersey, because that's really most preferred jurisdictions that we've seen in recent months that the affected deals consider to go for. Ireland could be potentially an alternative, but if we're thinking here about non-EU securitizations, for example, US CLOs, obviously going for Ireland as an alternative jurisdiction brings that entire transaction scope of the securitization regulation because of the use of an EU member state established SPV, which Irish SPV essentially will bring 
on the table. So there are also other jurisdictions being considered. Delaware is mentioned for some, again, mainly US securitizations that could be targeting EU investors. BVI was also discussed initially, but there is some concern that not only BVI at the moment is on the Annex 2 tax list, the one that you mentioned earlier, there's also concern that BVI will be assessed by Financial Action Task Force, FATF, in October this year, and they may very well end up in the same position in Caymans, i.e. will be added uh, by the FATF to its monitoring list, which will then result in the EU to make a move on the BVI, like just like they did on Caymans, and BVI may end up in due course on the EU-owned AML blacklist. So BVI doesn't tend to be in practice these days, the jurisdiction considered as an alternative. Bermuda was considered as an alternative and is being used in some type of transactions, like some US silos, I think, considered and may have moved the vehicles to Bermuda. But again, because of these additional considerations we've discussed, and given that Bermuda is currently on Annex 2 tax list, that gives rise to not a restriction, as Fabrice kind of and I mentioned, but the need to comply with this additional regulatory burden, having to go to EU member state tax authority as an investor and notified about this investment. Obviously, if investors do not want to have this additional headache, Bermuda wouldn't necessarily be the most natural choice. But in principle, it is open. If investors are happy to deal with the tax authority notification, it could be another option. Yeah, and, and Maria, the EU blacklisting of the Cayman for AML purposes presumably brings other consideration outside securitization, regulation. Yep, absolutely. And this is kind of a broader point. It's nothing to do specifically with securitization regulation at all. It's purely the point about the fact that we do need to remember that updates to the EU uh, blacklist for anti-money laundering purposes immediately brings in scope additional considerations under the EU anti-money laundering directive as it's implemented in each of the EU member states. Because when relevant institutions are dealing with natural or legal persons in blacklisted jurisdictions for AML purposes, they will need to remember to apply enhanced customer due diligence under the EU AML directive regime as it applies in the relevant member state. But this is a broader point. It's kind of outside of the situation regulation kind of considerations, but worth bearing in mind because the relevant institutions will need to remember to apply uh, and comply with their internal policies on enhanced customer due diligence. Yeah, and before we wrap up, I'd like to come back on the post-Brexit divergence between EU and UK regime. And I'd like to hear you, Maria, on the practical implications and different considerations under the EU and UK separate regimes as, as a result. Do you mind commenting on that a bit? Yeah, of course. I mean, in a way, it's more straightforward and uh, somewhat easier analysis to carry out. Because under the UK securitization regulation, we don't need to be concerned about updates made to the EU AML blacklist. But of course, UK has got its own AML blacklist. And in fact, when FATF put Caymans on its monitoring list back in February last year, in, in February 2021, UK made its move on the Caymans much faster and Caymans were added to the UK blacklist for anti-money laundering purposes back in March 2021. So similar to the point I've just mentioned on the EU anti-money laundering directive and the enhanced customer due diligence considerations, the same kind of broader point applies in the UK since March 2021 because the relevant UK 
UK institutions would have had to think about applying enhanced customer due diligence under the UK anti-money laundering regime when dealing with institutions, legal or natural persons in the Cayman Islands. But it does not create any restriction in terms of parties in scope of the UK securitization regulation having to worry about setting up Cayman SPVs or having to invest in securitizations with Cayman SPVs. So the same concerns do not arise for parties in scope of the UK regime. So updates to the EU or UK tax lists uh, on third country jurisdictions do not give rise to any considerations under the UK regime either, because again, UK never implemented uh, anything like tax authority notification requirement that we have to think about in connection with the EU Annex 2 tax list updates. That's not relevant under the UK regime at all. And finally, I should probably flag that UK securitization regulation regime is under review. It is subject to amendments in due course. For the time being, UK authorities didn't give any indication at all that they're thinking of making similar changes. For example, replacing references to FATF blacklist with references to the UK own anti-money laundering list or introducing anything like tax authority notification requirement. But that's a space to watch. We don't know exactly how that will work. So this is just a development that may crystallize into course at one point. But for now, no indications from the UK authorities that they're thinking about making those sort of changes to mirror what is in operation in the EU regime. Thanks, Maria. I think that that's a very useful comment. Maybe it's time to wrap up on this discussion. I think we've covered a lot of topics here and there's a lot of takeaways for our listeners. Maybe I'd like to summarize some of these takeaways as closing remarks just to make things re- relatively clear for everyone. I have four points in mind, to, you know, having in mind what, what we've just discussed. I think the first one would be to insist on the recommendation to be mindful of which jurisdiction, which list we're talking about. They're not all the same. There's the ban, there's the administrative burden of the notification. It's not the same, so this is to be followed closely. And that's the first point. Number two, I would be inclined to say do not panic and and the history of that that saga just tells us a lot about it there is generally no requirement to divest for existing positions we discussed the position for ongoing commitments etc but uh, generally no need to come back on on the old 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 bookings etc this is a difficult topic because this is somehow moving targets. These lists evolve over time. They are reviewed. They change uh, once or twice a year, depending on the, on, on the list, both on the European and the UK side. So again, a moving target, which creates some form of uncertainties, we admit. And as a last comment, this is one of the matters where EU and UK regimes are not aligned at the moment and the lists are not the same. So again, watch out the position on the UK side and the European side, their own specificities. So we hope you found that uh, that discussion helpful and thanks for, thanks for listening. Thank you very much. 